At RWJ Barnabas Health, we have a passion for heart health. With the largest adult and pediatric cardiac surgery programs in the state, a heart transplant program that's top 15 in the nation, a partnership with Rutgers Health, the latest technology and medical advancements, and nationally renowned care for every heart in every one of our communities. Whoever your heart beats for, our hearts beat for you. Let's be healthy together. Visit rwjbh.org heart. RWJ Barnabas Health, New Jersey's largest academic health care system and official health care provider of the New Jersey Devils. Let's be healthy together. Learn more at rwjbh.org. Speak of the Devils is supported by Riverside Oral Surgery, official partner of the New Jersey Devils. Welcome into another episode of Speak of the Devils, presented by RWJ Barnabas Health, the official healthcare provider of the New Jersey Devils. We're really excited to have ESPN's Greg Wyshynski on with us now. Uh, Greg, always a pleasure. Uh, you know, you're a big Devils fan. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, I did want to open things off with, let's be honest here, hasn't been the best season for the New Jersey Devils, but there have been some signs of life and a bright future. What do you think about this roster and what were some of your observations from this season? I mean, it was a bummer, right? Like I, I, I was, I don't know if I was necessarily somebody who thought they were going to be a playoff team this year, but I certainly thought they were going to be more competitive than they were. And it's just really hard to kind of evaluate where this team is based on not only the, the sort of things that other teams have dealt with the COVID interruptions and the rescheduling of games and things like that, that have happened this season. And, you know, the culmination of two years of this stuff, but you know, when you have like the population of Bergen County as your goaltenders in a season, it's never good. (laughs) So like um, that's really hard to evaluate. And um, like you said, there are some bright spots. I think obviously the season that Jack Hughes had before his injury was um, uh, kind of the thing that a lot of people have been waiting to see from Jack is to see uh, him be a, a guy putting up franchise player level numbers and creating excitement and and being that face of the franchise. I mean, like one could argue that, you know, one of the more transformative moments for the, the franchise was him going to the all-star game and, and putting on a magician's hat. Like that's the kind of thing that when they drafted Jack Hughes, they knew that they could have, they could have a guy that could be, not only um, an absolute magician on the ice, but a magician off the ice and, and sort of be a, somebody that attracts fans to come to the game. Um, obviously, Jesper Bratt has been incredible uh, to the point where now my Canadian friends are trying to figure out ways to offer seat the guy, which is always the, uh, the mark of excellence, I think. Um, and then, you know, there, there have been some other highlights too. I mean, uh, but overall, like the season just feels very sort of truncated and interrupted. I mean, the fact that we missed Dougie Hamilton for as long as, as, as we did in the lineup, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Like uh, it's just really hard to get a handle on what this team is. And I think that's one of the hard things about trying to evaluate Lindy Ruff, for example, is you have sort of, you're of two minds when you're looking at the coaching position, you're at a, you're, you're looking at a guy who in two years, has posted a points percentage of less than 400, which is, you know, untenable. But then you're also looking at a guy who for two straight years, um, the best laid plans for goaltending went awry with the acquisition and then retirement of Corey Crawford, the acquisition and injury to Jonathan Bernier. Um, And then, you know, also you have to take into account that 
you know, he's done pretty well in developing the younger players in the roster um, to the point where, you know, I've, I've heard Jack Hughes is a real admirer of the guy. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that, with, with the, the coaching staff and as a whole going forward, because there haven't been results, but there have been some results. And there's also been some excuses, I think, for the results they've gotten. Yeah, I mean, I have just a quick follow up on that. I mean, it feels like Murphy's Law. I mean, anything that can go wrong has gone wrong for <laughs> the New Jersey Devils. Uh, you know, there's a stat in the NFL that I love to reference because it says, you know, the teams that lose a bunch of one score games one year or have a certain level of injuries tend to shift the other way the next year. I mean, obviously, they have some work to do in roster building. It's not necessarily a complete roster that just had a bunch of injuries, but, you know, it almost feels like it has to get better just based on <laughs> this stuff can't keep happening, right? You just feel like even if the development continues the same way, next year's probably going to be better regardless. Well, yeah, that's how people felt after last season, though. I mean, that's true. <laughs> that is that is true. It didn't happen. <laughs> um, no, I mean, here's the, the pieces are there. I mean, you, you talk to people around this league and they all seem to recognize that, especially up front, the, the devils are, are loaded for better. They've got a number of great young players. I mean, you know, when you are uh, building something and two of the pillars of your foundation are Jack Hughes and Nico Heischer, you're doing something right. Um, and then you know, obviously you have Holtz coming up through the system as well. And they've got a number of young, young assets that are going to be a big part of this team going forward. Um, and so the question is, is like, what else do they need to support those players and, um, you know, I, I think there are still obviously holes in this lineup. I mean, when, when you look at the defense right now, I think you could probably use another defensive defensive rock back there um, to, to support the players that they have. And then the one thing that that not only from my own observation, but also in talking to players, to people around the league uh, about the Devils, uh, that I think is going to be a real key for the offseason is finding that forward that can play with Jack Hughes that can be a physical presence on his line and not necessarily like Milan Lucic, right? Like, but like, you know, Tom wilson you know, maybe without the, you know, sociopathic nature of his game, but like <laughs> somebody who's going to be able to kind of clear space, watch over him a little bit um, and, and be a physical force in the, uh, in the attacking zone that he hasn't necessarily had. Like when I talk to people around the league, they're like, that's the type of player that Jack needs to play with. Like if you, if you put a Chris Kreider with him or somebody like that to, to use a local example, like that's the type of player that, uh, that folks believe could really um, even level up Jack's game even more next season. If, if he had that player on his line. Greg, I actually want to kind of touch upon that a little bit too. And, and second of all, thanks again for uh, joining us today, but where do you think, and I know we don't want to speculate, but where would a guy like an Evander Kane fit in, in this roster, this, this city, this, this type of team, you know, he's got his own problems, but he kind of fits the mold and checks all those boxes, doesn't he? He kind of does. Uh, I mean, like with the baggage though, I mean, you know, I look, I think Vander Kane was a really shrewd pickup for the Edmonton Oilers because he didn't cost them anything. You know, that they had, they had the contract termination in San Jose, um, he goes to Edmonton. He obviously juices up his offensive numbers playing with, on that team and uh, and has been a good fit for them. Um, I've long said that the problem with Evander Kane isn't necessarily what he does during the season. It's that eventually the offseason comes. And then you have to start worrying about all of the other Evander Kane things that have happened in the last several years. 
Um, I think from a tactical standpoint, you're probably right. He's he's got the skill set that might be able to blend in with what the Devils need from a uh, everything else standpoint. Not necessarily sure that's the kind of dude that I want hanging around in the locker room. I totally understand, and that's kind of the good and the bad that comes with him, I guess. Yeah, but you, you mentioned the pieces that are there. What do you think about Nico Heischer's game? I mean, obviously, when people talk about Hughes and Heischer, they think of Hughes as the superstar, but Heischer sometimes gets overshadowed a little bit. And where do you see his ceiling maybe being? Because, I mean, I don't necessarily know that he'll be a point-per-game type player, but right now he's got 35 points in 31 games and is performing like one. Yeah, the best thing that happened to the Devils was having uh, a center like Jack Hughes available when they had that pick in the draft, because I think that Nico's perfect spot is as that that second line center who dominates like, um, you know, his game. Typically, when you think about team building, you have that that one a center that's like your offensive dynamo. Right. Then you have that next guy who's more of your Patrice Bergeron type, like you're fully rounded two way player. Um, who could score, but also you can deploy him against other teams, uh, top, top talent. And I think Nico certainly fits that mold. Uh, the best thing I could say about him is that more and more of the analytics geniuses that I follow on Twitter uh, are always talking about uh, Nico as one of their favorite players and one of the more underrated players in the league. So the smart ones know, the smart ones know how good Nico is. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, once, once this team turns the corner towards contention again, we're really going to see you know, him being a huge asset and a huge reason why it's happened. Let's talk uh, Dougie Hamilton. Uh, obviously, it's been a really rough first season here, but I'm I'm a big subscriber to the first year of a trade acquisition or a free agent. You don't necessarily throw it out the window, but it is really tough. They're trying to mesh with a new organization. They've got new line mates, defensive pairings. You throw into it his injury. It's going to be a difficult first year for him. So I think moving forward, that acquisition is going to pay dividends down the line. But uh, is there anything that you've seen from him this year or that you wish you had saw from him this year? What are What is your evaluation of Dougie Hamilton? Well, yeah, the injury really kind of messed with the season. And, and you throw in on top of all the other things you just mentioned, living in a new place and, and being on a team, going from a team in Carolina where, you know, cup contention was on the menu every season for the last few years, he was there to now being on a team that was sort of an also ran pretty quickly this year has also probably been impactful for the guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I'm with most devils fans that a change to the way the team orchestrate this power play next year would probably behoove them. Um, and that's where I'm interested to see Dougie fit in. If, if they do change the power play schematics, how you play to his strengths, um, and then just overall, hopefully getting a full run of, of health from the guy in a season where, again, you know, like I think offensively, there's a lot of reason to believe this could be a top 10 team in goal scoring next season. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the goal scoring proof is in the pudding this season, too. Uh, and, and obviously, Dougie would be a big part of that. Greg, you touched on a little bit, obviously, with uh, looking for that strong physical forward to play with Jack Hughes. Going into the offseason, put on your general manager's hat. You're looking at this team. You're Tom Fitzgerald right now. What are some of the needs or some boxes you'd like to fill? I'm not saying you can, because obviously it's a hard thing to do to, to get all your wants and needs in the offseason. But what are some areas that you'd like to see this team address if you're the general manager in this situation? Yeah, you know, the physical player is 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 a big deal, but it's also just a bit more veteran presence up front. Um, I, I think they could probably use 
you know, a Kyle Palmieri-esque type player, but not necessarily Kyle Palmieri, if that makes sense. Um, another defensive defenseman back there on the blue line would be a good thing. But again, the, the biggest need for this team is to figure out the goaltending. And it's tough. Like, um, it's tough because they tried to address it in consecutive seasons and it didn't work. Um, so you're hoping there's not strike three. But it's also tough because, you know, we saw the goaltending carousel spin so quickly last year in the offseason that uh, you sometimes can't find your guy. I mean, like, look what happened to the Avalanche last year where Philip Grubauer all of a sudden goes to Seattle and uh, they have to give up a bunch of assets for Darcy Kemper. Now, at the time, it seemed like it was an overpay and it wasn't going to work out. And then all of a sudden, Kemper really became one of the best goalies in the league from January on. So sometimes it does work out. But you know, finding that type of guy that's going to be able to solidify the goaltending position or, or, you know, remake it is going to be really difficult. And, you know, part of it is also trying to identify what you have already, you know, do they have faith in Mackenzie Blackwood? Do they have faith in Nico Dawes? Like what do they have in the system already that could be you know, paired with somebody coming in? Or do you just push all your chips in the middle of the table and, and go after someone like John Gibson or, or go after someone like that, that could maybe be, uh, the guy for you, not only next season, but in multiple seasons after that. So it's a real tough decision. Uh, the good news for the Devils is that they have a multitude of assets that they can move for a goalie if they identify one they want. Um, and then they'll obviously have, also have the cap space to handle, um, you know, most contracts they bring aboard if, if it is a solution from outside the organization. And I'm glad you mentioned the difficulty because I think sometimes fans often are like, oh, just go get a goaltender as if it's just one phone call and you get you get somebody and uh you know tristan jerry goes down in pittsburgh and everyone's blaming the general managers for not getting a good backup goaltender it's like every team in the league is looking for just the some teams don't even have a number one goaltender let alone having a good backup yeah. goaltender so and like casey DeSmith, casey DeSmith is would be an improvement in new jersey like you know there's like it's 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 fair to say that i mean yeah, you're right. And I think that's the the challenge for Fitzgerald and, and the staff is, is like, we're in kind of a down cycle in goaltending anyway, right now. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of teams that if you really, if you gave them the, the Wonder Woman lasso of truth and said, is your guy a true number one? They'd be like, not really. We got two number twos. Um, so that's kind of the problem right now too, is you don't have a lot of 1A types that um, are even in the league. And if they are, they're certainly not going to be available um, depending on, because they're usually going to be on successful teams. Like you're not prying Andre Vasilevsky for the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? So like, it's uh, it's going to be a challenge to identify that guy. And that's why I think, you know, you've seen the Devils uh, dabble more in the complimentary goalie than to try to find that franchise guy. I mean, like Corey Crawford would have been a nice compliment. You know, Jonathan Bernier would have been a nice compliment. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you're just looking to solidify the position versus remake it. But that's just by virtue of there not being a whole lot of guys you can deck and remake it. I mean, you know, there's always going to be like the Carey Price situation in Montreal, but, you know, who even knows what that could manifest into and who even know, knows if that's the right direction to go. Definitely a fascinating offseason ahead, but you know, let's let's pivot now. Let's talk about your history as a Devils fan. Uh, Madawan, New Jersey native, uh, grew up cheering on the Devils. Still chime in on social media quite a bit about the Devils. Uh, love seeing that. Um, you know, just give us a little background. What are some of your favorite memories, and and why are the Devils so dear to you? 
Ranger fans don't like when I chime in on Twitter about the Devils. I can tell you that. So <laughs> they don't funny. like much of anything on social media, though. Let so. me let me let me <laughs> let me do a little show and tell. This was the first Devils jersey I ever owned. Uh, like I had a crappy uh, green and red one that was like made with like electrical tape, but this is my uh, Claude Lemieux jersey. So as a young little fan, rocking the Claude Lemieux jersey, and this is probably the one that I, I wear the most, which is the throwback. Uh, and I threw Stevens in the back. Yes, yeah, of course. I wouldn't you? Uh, that they're in ends show and tell. Um, so my dad, uh, my dad was an Islanders fan, and uh, when I first got into hockey. I, I wanted to root for the team in New Jersey. So he kind of converted to being a Devils fan. And so, you know, my, my first year of really kind of engaging with the team was 88, the first time they made the playoffs. And just like that, you know, hooked me, like li- living and dying with your team, with your playoff rounds, um, which at the time were just bloody, just gory playoff rounds, uh, was awesome. And, and um, you know, my dad and I went to the playoff game after the Don Koharski incident where the referees refused to work the game, we were at the game. I think that they refused to work. We were either at the game where the Koharski thing happened or the next game. And I can't remember which one it was. We were there during Donut Gate. Um, and then, you know, just was a huge fan. Like, I mean, my, my devil's fandom is the reason I got into hockey. And uh, because at the time, like, you know, it's funny, like you talk, you talk to people today that have like ESPN plus and have access to all these games you know, back in the day, it's like we didn't even get to see the Western Conference unless they were coming to play the Devils. Like, yeah, I never got to see Gretzky play uh, because it just wasn't available on television. So my, my fandom was definitely devil centric. And uh, my, my highlights, I mean, the highlight of my life, one of them was I was at game four in 95. Uh, and I was there because my dad. So my dad won uh, New Jersey lottery, won like a pick four or something. And uh and he won a bunch of money. And he said, I'm going to use this money to buy Devil's uh, Stanley Cup final tickets. I'm like, this is a great idea. And so his idea was he wanted to get game four uh, against Detroit because he believed, one, it would definitely happen. Can't win a game, win the cup in three games. So there's definitely going to be a game four. And two, he believed we were going to get our asses kicked so bad that they would. Detroit would probably win the cup that night. <laughs> right. So like he's, he's thinking there's going to be a game. There's probably a good chance Detroit's going to win the cup. So let's just go and see this moment in history. And it turns out the complete other way, which is that the devil sweep the red wings. And then he, me and I are there um, uh, to see the cup uh, get, get awarded. And it's just euphoria. I made um, a little uh, octopus out of a, a child's ball and a, a the head of a mop that I braided into legs and I made a little cartoon bubble that said sweet me on it. And I was walking around, uh, Brendan Byrne with that. And like Red Wings fans were like taking pictures with me and stuff. So, um, did that, went to all the cup parades, like, it's just really fun, man. Like, you know, the, the, I'm a Mets, Jets, Nets and Devils fan. And, uh, for a very, very long time in my life, uh, the Devils were the only thing in my sports fandom that was successful. And, uh, and so that was a really great run. And, and I'll, um, I'm still kind of like when people are, are talking about the devils being terrible, you know, for multiple seasons and it hasn't been a really good stretch for them. Um, I feel kind of like guilty that 
I grew my formative years were spent during the championship run. And I'm still kind of on a contact high from that. Like, I don't want to live in the past. I want to be like a Canadiens fan talking about Rocket Richard or something. But like, but like, you know, that part of my life was such a joyous time to see that team be as good as they were that uh, that I'm still kind of like, eh, it's all right. They'll get good eventually. But I got to see them win three times. And that's pretty great. You mentioned uh, some of the great Canadian players. Who were some of the Devils? I mean, you showed the Claude Lemieux and Stevens. Who were some of your favorite players growing up? And who are the guys that really hooked you? Well, I was a Marty guy. Um, like, I fully recognize the divisive nature of Marty Brodeur fandom in the sense of, like, who made what, you know, chicken or the egg, that kind of thing. Uh, I always saw it as sort of, like, you can run the West Coast offense, but it's Joe Montana that makes it work, right? Like other teams tried to run the trap, but having Brodeur was one of the primary reasons why the Devils were able to excel with it. Um, that said, I fully acknowledge that Dominic Hasek was better than both Brodeur and Patrick Waugh. Like that's just canonical in my mind. So it was him. Um, I really loved, uh, um, before him, Chris Terreri was my guy, like just, a goalie that I really enjoyed watching. He played behind some pretty poor defensive teams. So he was like flopping around and doing lots of fun stuff. And then I was a huge fan of the, um, the Madden Pandolfo defensive unit. Like, you know, as you're, as you're a fan, you start to learn more about the, the ins and outs of the game through the construction of your team and what it does. And like, you know, I, I was cognizant of what a checking line was supposed to do very early on. Going back, way back, there was a guy named Lori Boschman, the Devils acquired to be like their checking center. I'm like, oh, that's a thing you need. But then Madden and Padalfa were just like, just incredible. They're just an incredible duo. I remember them shutting down, you know, Yager and 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 all these other things that they did as a duo. And it was just really fun to watch. It's it's the, it's the same reason I appreciated the uh, Yanni Gord, Blake Coleman, Barkley Goudreau line on the lightning the last couple of years, like to have a line that not only could shut down the opponent, but also score occasionally and be the difference maker is such an asset for a team. And I feel like Madden and Padolfo were definitely that for the Devils. And then you mentioned the, uh, the Stanley Cup win, obviously, as a kid. Are there any signature memories or moments that stand out? There's like a big hit, a big win, a tough loss. I mean, a lot of fandoms mold in, in those hard losses, too, is Anything really stand up again besides that Stanley Cup moment? Because obviously that one's the big yeah, one. Yeah, crying in my living room because of the Rangers one in 94. It was the worst feeling of my life. It was the worst feeling of my life because of the euphoria of the Devils tying the game late on that Zelopukin goal and then losing in overtime in the manner in which they did. And, and, and the thing that like nobody outside of the like tri-state area understands, um, and maybe, maybe. Um, maybe there's a Pittsburgh Philly part of this too. Um, but like the idea that when you're a kid and you're a fan, that uh your your next day of of life will be dramatically impacted by whether or not your team beat their rival was like a day-to-day thing when I was in high school. Like, you know, we were all Devils fans. There were a bunch of Rangers fans there. Like if the Devils lost to the Rangers the night before you're going in and finding somebody has defaced your locker because, because they are, they are, they're like spiking the football on you. So, you know, like I dreaded the fact that like I had so many friends that were Rangers fans that are going to, they were going to have one over on me because of 94. And then like, obviously the devils win in 95. And then of course, all the Ranger fans are like, that's half a cup. 
it doesn't really count. And you're just like, come on. Um, so it was with much joy that, of course, the Devils won twice more uh, to kind of solidify that run. But um, yeah, that was rough. And then I, there was also that game back in the day where the Devils had a chance to make the playoffs and didn't. And it was like some backup goalie, like Wayne, Wayne Dublowitz or something, like beat them in the game. And it was just an embarrassment. There's been plenty of times when I've been there. Obviously, as a professional, I was there too when, you know, they they lost in the cup final of the Kings and things like that. But the, the cup final of the Kings was really funny because, like, that series had clearly tilted towards L.A. and there was a sense that the Kings were going to win. And I remember the big, the big thing in that series was that um, the Devils winning game five, I think it was, and then throwing the series back to L.A., was sort of just prolonging the misery for the writers. The writers were like, you got to be kidding me. You know, this should series should be over. Now we all have to pack up our things and get in the plane and fly back across the country. And then, of course, like the Devils, then, you know, uh, Steve Bernier takes a five-minute major in the first period and the Kings score a bunch of goals and the game is just like a joke after that. Everybody's like, you couldn't have finished this in Jersey. Um, so, but, you know, it's funny. You talk about like me being a Devils fan and, and uh, that kind of ties into my history a little bit in the sense of, um, I came up as a writer in the mid aughts. So like 2006, seven, somewhere around there. And it was sort of verboten to be like, I'm a fan of this team of the sport that I'm paid to cover. And like, I just didn't care. Like, like I, I felt like that fandom informed who I am and informed my passion for being a hockey writer. And it, it I was going to be accused of it anyway. Like when I was critical of the flyers, like they were going to say, look at this, here's a picture of this kid in the devil's Jersey. Like it's going to come out eventually. Right. So let's just be candid about it. And, and it was freeing because then, you know, like you could have more conversations with people about your fandom and about being a fan and, and having paid for tickets and not just simply being somebody who sits in the press box all the time. And, and so um, it's been a real joy of mine to see that vibe kind of pervade through sports fandom where like, you know, Mina Kimes is a Seahawks fan and you know where people stand. The Toronto fans all pretend they don't like the Leafs. It's pretty funny, actually. They all try to be like above, above the, the fray, but we all know that they do. Um, but, but I think it's been really cool and, and, a, and a positive thing, I think, for, for sports journalism, for people to be like, you know, we're writing about entertainment and like, if we're not, honest with the reasons why we're engaged in this entertainment and why we are passionate about this entertainment, then like, what are we doing? Like, it's, it's not, we're not Woodward and Woodward and Bernstein in most cases. Like it's just kind of should be fun a little bit. Right. Yeah. I like that. I, I think sometimes fans forget that you're not robots turning out, you know, uh, press releases. It's, it's, there's a human behind it and they have a history and they've obviously been fans of sports because they got into sports. And I, I guess that's a transition to my next question was, what was the moment you realized I want to be a sports journalist? Uh, you know, I'll always remember mine. I'm sure Sam remembers him. You know, what was, what was the moment where you said, Hey, I could do this. I can be good at it. And this is what I want to do. It's probably when somebody decided to pay me for it. <laughs> <laughs> similar, similar. Yeah. I can get paid uh, for this. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I used to, I used to, um, my dad used to bring home the star ledger and the daily news. Um, we worked in the city. And so I would, I would just read the daily news from the back page, to the front and uh, immediately go to the sports section, the star ledger and, and really enjoy um, not only reading 
sports writing, but also kind of like as a very young kid, kind of just picking it apart and realizing, okay, this person said this to get this reaction from me. And, and, and the, this report is here because they know that it'll rile people up and, and all that kind of thing. And so from like a very early age, I was really interested in the craft of writing. And, you know, I've read a lot. Um, I've talked before about how like as a kid, um, Roger Ebert's reviews were a big influence on me as a writer, um, not only because it taught me how to uh, praise something, but also taught me how to properly criticize something like it's not good enough to just be like, this sucks. Like you got to be able to kind of like state your case. And the more you can state your case and intrinsically pick something apart, the stronger your argument's going to be. And so that's taught me from a very early age that, um, you know, as a writer, if you're going to be critical of something, you can't just be hyperbolic and bombastic. You should be able to back up your argument and, and, and make a strong case for why you believe the things you believe. Um, but it, so I went to Maryland uh, for college because I didn't want to go to Rutgers because all my friends went there. Um, and so then uh, and I also wanted to kind of live away from my parents. And so I studied journalism there, but I had a concentration on public relations because at the time they said, if you want to make money in journalism, that's how you should do. You should go to PR. Um, so I, I took all the journalism classes. I just ended up in PR for like a little bit, very, very small amount of time after college. And then eventually hooked up with a newspaper in Virginia. And I guess I guess the 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 first time I realized that I could do this was when um, I just started to kind of like get things published uh, on the Internet. I was coming up at a time when digital journalism was just sort of booming. And, you know, I had a few places where I wrote a weekly column and, and, and it was sort of syndicated through some sites. And it was at that point I'm like, oh, OK, so there's not only a market for this, but there's also some people that would like in theory, pay for it. And so that kind of got me on the road, but I wouldn't be where I was today without um, a guy named Jamie Matram who ran AOL Fan House and eventually ran Yahoo Sports, who uh, gave me my break at uh, this site called Fan House, which was like at, at a time, a place where all these like bloggers, you still probably know the names of, work there. Um, and then that led to me eventually going to Yahoo after that. So I, People are always asking me, like, how do you break into the profession? Like, and, and, you know, there is ways to do it. I mean, like hard work and, and, uh, you know, being able to do multimedia things and, and, and all right, right with regularity and have a viewpoint, all these, the advice I usually give when I like speak journalism classes, but like, I make no bones about the fact I just came up at the right time. Like I came up at the right time. James Myrtle from the athletic came up at the right time. Like we all came up together at a time when the thing that we were doing, this blogging thing was very new and, uh, and people really wanted to consume it. And, and so I don't, I don't know. I always count my blessings on, on that fact. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned, obviously you grew up as a devil's fan, we're all fans at some level, but we're also fans of writers, you know, and I grew up in kind of the blogging age and, and I still did get the newspaper, but most of the things I read when I was coming through was on the blog and, so I won't hide my uh, Puck Daddy fandom and, <laughs> and tell you that, like, I mean, it was a huge, imp I mean, the day didn't go by where you were checking out what the top stories were, the headlines or even the quick snippets. And, you know, where did the idea of that kind of spring from? I know you just mentioned the getting your opportunity on that fan house, but did you kind of see just how the market was going and try to capitalize? Or is that just how you wanted to cover hockey or, you know, what were you just saying? Because I know the biggest thing that re reached me was, all right, if I'm a fan, this is kind of the stuff I want to read, I'm interested in. 
And was that just you just giving the audience kind of what they wanted or just giving the audience what you as a fan would want? Yeah, I mean, the opportunity came because Yahoo was building out this blog thing and they had, you know, you know, Jay Skeets, who's now like a big NBA TV guy and like a bunch of people writing there. And, and so they gave me the chance to make a hockey blog. And, and but then, then after that, it was all like the direction I wanted to take it, like you said. And where I wanted to take it was was a few things. I wanted it to be American centric because I felt like most of the hockey coverage was Canadian and that wasn't speaking to me as a fan. So I wanted to kind of make it very American centric to the point where I'm literally cheerleading for the Americans and like world juniors and things like that on the blog. Um, and then the other thing uh, I wanted to be funny. We had a three joke minimum for most stories that weren't obituaries. <laughs> and even then you might have three jokes. Uh, but, uh, but like um, I, I wanted to always have a lightness to it that even if we're talking about, you know, some serious debate topics, like, have a little bit of snark in there and have a little bit of humor in there. And, and it doesn't even have to be anything that like the, the reader finds funny, just like make yourself laugh three times. That was the advice I gave myself and to the writers that worked there. Um, and then the other thing, and, and this was, I think the, the real key to the site and why it worked was um, I worked at Deadspin, the old Deadspin for, for a little bit. And the reason that site I thought worked really well was the, the regularity of its posting. Like if you were stuck in an office um, every time you went to that site, there was going to be something new. And that was really exciting. And so when we when we ran Puck Daddy at Yahoo, I tried to have a new thing up every hour. Um, so every time you came back, there was something new. And sometimes it would be a big story. And sometimes it would just be like the news happening during the day. But I always thought about that person out there that was like me, that was stuck in a cubicle and being like, I hate this. This, I, I really need to distract myself. And, and then, you know, you have this site where every time you hit refresh, there's something kind of new and interesting happening. But it was also like, like you said, you know, engaging with the audience too. And I think that that was sort of the same vibe that eventually led to the podcast and things like that, that I did, which was this notion of like community and interaction and, and inviting people to be in on the fun and feeling like you're part of something. Like I've always felt that to be a really important thing. And maybe that's my hockey fandom of just like, um, you know, sometimes hockey can be very insular and, and alien and, and make people feel like uh, it's not for them. And so the more entry points you create into the sport, the better it's going to be for the sport. And that was one of the true joys of, of Buck Daddy was just like, I had as many people telling me, oh, your debate on expanding the playoffs was incredible. I really loved it. As I do have people being like, the Photoshop contest that you ran where, <laughs> you know, X, Y, Z happened is the reason I read your site. And it's like, that's great. Let's, let's just invite everybody to the party. Yeah. I love that. And last one, obviously, thank you so much for your time before we let you go though. Transition that into working now for ESPN. How did that opportunity come about? How are things going so far? And what's it like being at the, uh, the biggest sports network in the world? <laughs> Well, it came about because of, of what we did at Yahoo, where, you know, they they wanted to kind of change the way they covered hockey. This was before the, they got the rights back. And so they hired me and they hired Emily Kaplan and, and they just said, like, go and, and do some different things. And um, and that was great. And, and, I, and I feel like, you know, not having it be so uh, boardroom centric and front office centric and here's what the GMs are all saying kind of thing. Uh, and making it more about like, you know, one of the first things I wrote there was I went to Alabama and wrote about 
like two minor league teams there and what that experience is like and and doing stuff some stuff like that um there's a story that i just reported based on a, a thing i went to in jersey which was the nhl showing um augmented reality and virtual reality ways that they're going to um put out there maybe the next season so you can like watch an enhanced version of the game on your phone as you're at the game like these are the types of things that i feel like are, were underrepresented um in in the coverage on espn that i think we we've been able to really bring to the forefront um and it's been fun you know like obviously like life has changed incredibly uh in an incredible way with having the rights not only in the amount of promotion that my stuff gets now but also um you know the access and, and the opportunity that comes with, with having the rights so to be able to do that now is is really cool to be able to carve out a little niche for myself on the hockey wagering side, I think is really cool. I've, I've long said that the minute people realize they can bet on hockey is the minute that the fandom and the interest in the game explodes, because I think that's always been a part of the game that has repelled fans. It's like every game is two to one. And how do I bet on it? Well, now you can like take the three minutes before the three on three overtime and bet on who's going to score the game winning goal. Like that's coming. So um, to be to be sort of a, a leading voice uh, in that area has been really exciting too. So it's it's all been good. It's a different gig than Yahoo. Obviously, I had to you know buy more ties, um, but uh, <laughs> but it's it's really fun, man. It's 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 a blast to work there. And and the one thing I've always told people even before we got the rights back is just like ESPN has that sort of reputation of like they don't like hockey. Like hockey doesn't get in the first five minutes of Sports Center, and everybody's like, you all hate hockey. And I was really pleasantly surprised when I got there one how many people that work in behind the scenes um cameras and editing and writing all this other stuff you know you walk around you see like Bruins flags and Rangers flags and Whalers stuff all over the offices in Bristol and then obviously like the people that you're now seeing uh in prominent roles now we got the rights back like John Buchagras and Linda Cohen and, and and all these folks Steve Levy um who are all really great people as well uh you know, are just like the most passionate people you can imagine about hockey and, and had been waiting like 15 years for this opportunity to come around and, and to see them get the, get the chance to sort of uh, live their lives again has been a real thrill for me too. Yeah. It's been fantastic to see, you know, hockey and the coverage on ESPN and it's only going to continue to get better and better. And you're a big part of that. So thank you so much, Greg, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, we hope that you continue to uh, put out some good content, some good vibes out into the devil's Twitterverse. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it'll be easier next year. Hopefully they won't, they won't make it so hard next year, but thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I, I, again, if, uh, if you want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter at Wyshynski and I, I make no bones about uh, being uh, more than happy to engage with uh, fellow devil's fans. Uh, mostly because I, I know at some point it will lead to them buying me a beer after the game. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Devils fans are great at that stuff, especially at Reds across the street. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Greg. Anytime. Thanks for having me.